Coming up, the link between the collapse of Venezuela's state oil producer, Credit Suisse Bank, and powerful nations exploiting unstable governments. What you have in Venezuela mostly, it's a scenario of fear. You can just be jailed by saying your opinion or by pointing something wrong in the system. The secrecy laws made impossible for anyone uh, in Switzerland to work with us because it was too risky and several lawyers really, they asked us to, to be really careful with that because it, it could mean that we could not go back to Switzerland. If you find a rich country, you will find companies in that country that made money in Venezuela and quite often made money in really dodgy ways. My name is Nick Wallace and this is Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption, a podcast from the Global Journalism Network, the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP as it's known. In 2022, OCCRP published a piece about banking corruption in Europe and how it facilitates crime in South America. Two journalists, Nathan Jacquard from OCCRP and Valentina Lares from Armando.info, worked as part of a team investigating a leak from the Swiss bank Credit Suisse. When OCCRP started examining the data, they found the names of more than 20 former executives of the collapsed Venezuelan state oil company known as PDVSA, PDVSA. Between them, they'd stashed away more than $270 million. Many of the people involved have either been convicted, indicted on corruption charges, or are on the run. But what interested the OCCRP and their partners was how a European bank could help facilitate the corruption. In an interview recorded before Credit Suisse was absorbed by the Union Bank of Switzerland, I started our conversation by asking Nathan how the OCCRP got hold of the leaked information. Originally, the, the data was provided to the German newspaper Sudaische Zeitung uh, by an anonymous source more than a year before we published. So that's in 2019. The person just left a message and saying that the Swiss banking secrecy laws were immoral. Did you know whether the source was internal or external to the bank? We don't know much and, and, and we really uh, can't say many uh, anything more about uh, the source. What we, we know is that this person had somehow access to, to some internal data about bank accounts. So what we, we got as a journalist is a massive amount of information that we started working on on that and organizing and identifying. So we first had like a couple of months of, of really boring work. And what was this data formatted in? Was it uh, electronic or were you given thousands and thousands of paper documents? And, and did it come directly from the newspaper, the German newspaper, after they'd done their own verifications? Or did you have to go through your own verification process to prove to yourself that the data was what it purported to be? It was like uh, electronic data, but it was still in a really raw format. When the raw data came to you, you, you said it was in, a, in a, a very disorganized state. I mean, what are we talking about? Are we talking about spreadsheets? Are we talking about lists of numbers? Are we talking about letters? H how, how much data were you actually handling? So the, the data, all in all, is more than 80,000 Credit Suisse accounts with 30,000 account holders. But uh, a 
really basic information that gave us uh, like dates when when the accounts were created like how much money was in the in in the account but we had to really start diving into the different countries we had uh, more than 160 nationalities from 120 different jurisdictions Aleph uh, this tool that we use uh, enables us to Filtrate, so we can start filtrating by nationalities. For instance, Venezuela one was one of the countries that was most uh, represented in the league. We had uh, 66,000 names just for Venezuela. But before we, we, we really started diving into the, the names, we had to spend like three months working on, on organizing the information we got, uploading it, checking that it was uh, accurate. So we had enough information to tell us that we had a legitimate uh, document. Well, you mentioned Venezuela and we're going to focus on Venezuela because that was the subject of your brilliant article, Black Gold in Swiss Vaults, Venezuelan Elites Hid Stolen Oil Money in Credit Suisse. And uh, listening patiently to what you've been saying is uh, Valentina Lares. Hi, Valentina. Hi. Hi. First of all, just tell us a little bit about Venezuela as a country. Where is it located for those who've never seen it on a map before or who've never been there? And and how does the economy function? Well, we are talking about a beautiful country (laughs) that is in the north of South America, between Colombia, Brazil in the south and the Caribbean Sea. We're talking about a country with uh, roughly 30 million people and it has survived or lived through oil exploitation the last uh, 50 years. It's the main source of uh, wealth of the country. It reached like 15 years ago, 3 million barrel per day, and it was the fifth uh, oil producer in the world. Those levels have fallen dramatically the last decade because of misconduct, bad administration, and also corruption. And now uh, it's barely recovering the oil production. We have fallen down to 400,000 barrels per day. And well, that has uh, provoked a huge wave of poverty, unfortunately, and also big exodus. Why is it that so many Venezuelans ended up with bank accounts at Credit Suisse? Because that obviously became a source of considerable interest to you when you received this data. Well, actually, that was a big surprise, I guess, for OCCRP. And that's why they reached to some Venezuelan journalists, me included. They needed a pair of coached eyes to see through so many names that were... uh, coming from Venezuela in the, as clients of Credit Suisse. So actually, uh, we started digging up to these names. Venezuela has the biggest proven reserves of oil in the world. And many, many of the names we were uh, looking at were linked to the oil industry. And they were not uh, new names for us. It's mostly names that we that we've heard, read, and know that are linked to schemes of corruption. But we found that many of the names that are already uh, indicted or under some legal procedures were having their monies in Credit Suisse. So that was like a, a first, let's say, that, that bell rang very loud for us. And we started digging on that because PDVSA, 
which is the state oil company. Yes, that stands for Petróleos de Venezuela SA, but is, everyone knows Petróleos it as Petróleos de Venezuela. Right. Okay, so that's basically yeah, the state-owned oil company. Yes. Well, it, it's no secret that it has been looted almost to the ground. Does it still exist? Because I, I got the sense that from its pomp, it, it barely exists because it's essentially been hollowed out by the corruption within it. It barely exists, but it does. It's uh, sort of recovering now with the help of... Iranians and Russians, but it used to be um, the the fifth oil producer in the world, and it went down to its knees practically. You know, you can go to any uh, infrastructure of PDVSA in Venezuela, and you will find just rusty places, rusty structures, and some of the refineries or the oil drills are almost abandoned. Nathan, just just explain to people who may have not come across Credit Suisse before and the way that Swiss banking works. Why would a corrupt Venezuelan oil executive want to open a Swiss bank account? So, yeah, Credit Suisse was one of uh, the biggest banks in, in Switzerland, hence in the world. So it's we're really talking about a major banking player and we know that during uh, I mean the most corrupt years in Venezuela and and where oil prices were really high there were lots of of corrupt schemes around PDVSA and in general in the country around a lot of of different aspects of food we are talking drugs uh, import for 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 the pharmacies for the hospital so it's not like your average $10 million corrupt guy. We're talking about corruption schemes uh, that are in the billion dollars. How, how do these corruption schemes actually manifest themselves? I mean, is it someone saying, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a contract if you add an extra $5, 10000000 million on for me and just deposit it over here? I mean, is it that simple? I mean, the the more classical scheme that where we are talking about contracts. So I give you a 10% if you give me the contract. So some guys that were uh, giving money in exchange for public uh, funds to do oil contracts. I mean, oil contracts that are worth uh, huge amounts of money, but also more complicated schemes because Venezuela at that time had an exchange, uh, a control on, 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 their, uh, on the Bolivar, the, the national currency. So they would control the exchange rates. And it's a bit complicated, but basically... Uh, if you had access to US dollars and the, the exchange rates, you could make a lot of money because you were getting like really, really, really cheap US dollars. And then instead of, of paying, uh, I don't know, 100 bolivares for $1, you would pay 10 bolivares for $1. So you could get like a lot of dollars uh, really cheap through government access and through government contacts. And then you could get like these dollars that you really bought really cheap and then go to international markets or resell them back in the black market in Venezuela. So doing a lot of money this way and really looting the country. But surely Credit Suisse, as a responsible banking organization, had a duty to inquire as to where their clients' wealth was coming from. Yeah, so 
At that time, you could see like several international banks and several Swiss banks, private ones, like smaller ones, but also bigger ones like Credit Suisse present in Venezuela with brokers that were really uh, trying to get and lure clients into the banks. And people and wealthy people, corrupt people knew where to go or with who to work where it was easier to get your money into a Swiss bank. Why, why would you want to get money into a Swiss bank? Because once it's in the Swiss system, it's a money that's almost clean. You can then go and, and buy a mansion or buy a yacht or whatever, and no one's going to ask anything. It's already uh, coming from a Swiss bank account. Supposedly, the banks have to do like a lot of verification, uh, know your client, due diligence, but we realized that, that this was something that was not done. We found a document that is coming from uh, Spanish prosecutors uh, that showed us one of the main clients. The, this guy is called Nervis Villalobos. He already had tried to open a bank account in Credit Suisse and they did a due diligence on him at that time and the due diligence we had some of the documents from the due diligence and they were raising a lot of red flags and saying this guy used to be a mini a vice minister of energy this guy is linked to these schemes but nevertheless they accepted him and they opened more and more accounts on his name and on his behalf Something which was very um, <laughs> like a eureka for us when we were investigating, it was the one of the addresses he submitted in Caracas. It just is not that it doesn't exist. It was like a mix between his address in Maracaibo and something in Miami. He made like a like a Frankenstein an address. Right. And uh, he said that was in Caracas. We are from Caracas and we saw this and said, this place is fantasy land completely. Well, as you say, it's a massive red flag and it's another intriguing part of your investigation. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about this is that you published an investigation in February last year. Now, after the financial crash in 2008-2009, World Banking was supposed to have cleaned up its act. And yet, from what you're saying, Credit Suisse were at the very least not doing due diligence on the customers they were attracting over the last decade and may well have been involved in corrupt practice, which suggests that at least this bank within the system hasn't cleaned up its act since the banking crisis. What was your interpretation of it? This bank has been going through a lot of different crises and scandals. And so, and they've always said, yeah, uh, we're sorry, this was a mistake. Uh, it's not systematic, we are cleaning up and, and, and we're trying to do an effort. Uh, but what we can see, and, and, and it's it's clear in the data, is that even after they had like a public announcement saying that they were getting their things together, organizing, and, and they were still accepting dirty money or very toxic money at least uh, that they should have known of. So we tried also to, to compile enough cases to show that this was a systematic practice that was happening in the bank. Some internal sources were also interviewed and, and, and there is one of, of the stories of the series of Swiss secrets that uh, includes their, their testimonies and 
they all say that there was an internal pressure to get big money into the bank and and partially linked also to to the 2008 uh, crisis because uh, that's when they also decide to expand to new markets and and to get more clients from from new markets so we're talking about Venezuela but we're also talking about uh, the Middle East, uh, uh, South Asia, so 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 other countries where where they decided strategically to to expand also after after the crisis. But uh, really, like if you have poor money for them, like one million dollars, five million dollars, you will go through the whole due diligence process, and it's gonna be tough, and they will verify. If you have twenty million dollars, forty million dollars. Uh, it's going to be uh, easier for you and they won't verify. You mentioned you spoke to some insiders, but how do you actually make contact with people inside a bank and persuade them to give you comment like this? There was a team that was mostly focused on why the bank was accepting this kind of clients. Uh, so they, they really uh, start like talking with former employees uh, that also connected them to current persons and uh, it's interesting because after the publication uh, more persons have come out and tried to to reach us of course it's it's really uh, difficult because it's not only that you can lose your job uh, or or really get a bad reputation in the industry uh, for coming out but it's also a legal issue uh, in switzerland uh, swiss laws are really tough on swiss secrecy on bank secrecy Okay, well, look, we'll come back to Switzerland's banking secrecy laws in a moment. But first, Valentina, what was the situation on the ground in Venezuela? Because you quote people anonymously who are still in fear. Well, in Venezuela, the let's say the ecosystem of uh, media and freedom of speech is severely damaged because, well, we are living under a dictatorship that uh, prosecutes people at their work uh, and also... You can, you can just be jailed by saying your opinion or by pointing something wrong in the system. So um, what you have in Venezuela mostly, it's an, uh, a scenario of fear of speaking. So we wanted with the article to explain how these kind of processes really affect the industry and the lives of people. So that's why we wanted to go to what once was the jewel of the oil production in Venezuela, which is Maracaibo, specifically Lago de Maracaibo, to see the effects of that corruption. And we found, of course, uh, most of the uh, oil workforce uh, diminished and exhausted and, and poor, basically. But also we found infrastructure uh, abandoned. And we wanted to, to describe as vivid as we could uh, how the jewel of Venezuela, uh, the main uh, motor of wealth of the country was uh, looted to the ground. And we started talking with the people and watching the places. And yes, that's a place where you can actually step on oil. It's coming out of the, out of, out of the soil, but you don't have now where to process it. All the all the pipes and tubes are rusty. You don't have the Navy fleet that used to transport the workers. And then when you talk to people about how they feel, how their life used to be when they had that job, you have a real sense 
of how in so little time we are talking about uh, five to 10 years, uh, someone that has, uh, let's say, their life insurance, you know, middle class workers, because working for PDVSA in Venezuela was, it, it was like an objective of life, you know, a goal for your life. If you had a job in PDVSA, you were set because you had a good job for, for, for all your life. But now that it's almost a guarantee of poverty and how that changed completely in, in, in a very uh, small amount of time. So, And you have oil shortages, don't you, in Venezuela? Well, that's the most, <laughs> it's incredible for us to, to actually process that information because we have always been the country, not only that has gasoline for everybody, but also the cheapest gasoline in the world. And you've been describing the the corruption and and the poverty that it engenders in in Venezuela. And Nathan, you you touched on the corruption uh, in the banking system in in Credit Suisse, or at least the turning of blind eyes to where money is coming from. But the the theme that actually connects them both for me is the fact that the government um, makes it very, very difficult for anyone to speak out against this. And and, and Nathan, you, you touched on this in particular, the, 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 the Swiss secrecy laws around banking actively discourage or indeed punish whistleblowers, which perpetuates the problem. Yes, so uh, that's, that's a really big, big, big part of, of the whole issue. It's forbidden and, and by the law in Switzerland to uh, hold banking information. So actually, uh, when we started working on that, we were all taking a risk and uh, a legal risk so that could have legal consequences and eventually end up uh, on a prison uh, sentence for uh, holding and, and, and just seeing this data. I'm Swiss, <laughs> from, I'm Colombian Swiss, and I was one of the persons that were just like thinking, so, okay, maybe I, I won't be able to go back to Switzerland because uh, it's going to be an issue for, for me. I have my family in Switzerland and, and then my grandmother. So maybe I couldn't like see my grandmother again uh, or at least in Switzerland because maybe we could have like uh, really uh, strong legal problems. That's also uh, was a problem for potential Swiss partners or for even going to Switzerland to, to investigate because we couldn't really tell uh, Swiss journalists to, to help us on this because we knew that that they would have like uh, massive consequences. But, I mean, that's them. crazy because you've got a country which is right in the middle of Europe, right in the middle of Western democracy, which effectively muzzles its own journalists from investigating corruption within its borders. You know, it's like uh, Switzerland is very proud of, of being this country where where you can speak up, but at the same time, they have these kind of laws. I mean, uh, it's more than an elephant in the room. It's like a thousand elephants that are in the room. Are these secrecy laws that exist in Switzerland part of the reason why you weren't able to partner up with a Swiss media company in order to publish your story, in order to work on that investigation yourself? Yes, these, these, these secrecy laws made impossible for anyone uh, in Switzerland to work with us because it was too risky and this was uh, several lawyers really went through through it and, and they said that, that it was not possible and 
they uh, asked us to to avoid going to Switzerland and and to to be really careful with that because it, it could mean that we could not go back to Switzerland. Uh, I was hesitant on on the fact of uh, putting my name uh, on the investigation, on being in the credits and and everything. What was it like, Valentina, working cross continents with people and and trying to make sure that. You, you actually were motivated to keep digging into these incredibly obscure documents to get the information you needed. Well, it's been, uh, it, it's been quite a, a breakthrough for me and, and also for Venezuelan journalism in general. The only way, way we have been actually able to write uh, stories about corruption, it's working globally with partners around the world because the information in Venezuela, it's uh, it's very, very hard to reach. Venezuela doesn't have practically any law that uh, protects uh, freedom of speech or access to information. So the opportunity to work in a platform like OCCRP that has uh, had access to this leak and so many others, it's like, a, it's, it's the only way practically. To, to have access to a story this powerful and this full of data, you know? You won't find, uh, or let's say, it's very hard and dangerous to find this kind of information inside Venezuela, so we are digging in what is outside. You're speaking to me from Spain at the moment. Are you at risk if you go back to Venezuela? Are journalists in general at risk? Uh, yeah, well, I work also in a in a website also of investigative journalism called Armando.info. We have uh, some journalists in Caracas, but some of us are outside because of that, because our editors were uh, prosecuted by the state uh, for cracking another story. And... They have to flee the country. Uh, the situation of journalists inside Venezuela is very tough. We have real, I don't like to use the word, but they are actually very brave and warriors, the reporters that are inside and still doing their work. You obviously work very closely as a team. What, what was it like seeing the story published and seeing the effect that it had? Fortunately, we had the chance to see some repercussions, but especially in the case of Venezuela, the repercussions were uh, among or between uh, the people and the and the few media that still exist there and it's independent. It was a big discussion. It was it was very important because we know in Venezuela that we've been robbed by in the last few decades, but this particular article and the Credit Suisse, uh, the whole series allowed us to know how you know who are the enablers that allow them to move the money from one place to another, to wash it, to to make it good for the financial system, you know? So um, it created public discussion. Sadly, it hasn't reached the, in the case of Venezuela, okay, just there, uh, it hasn't reached the judicial levels. There, There's no one prosecuted. Well, this is the thing. In your article, you talk about one Venezuelan who's sitting pretty in a villa just outside Madrid worth $2 million, uh, who's been fingered in your article for potential corruption charges, but yes. it, still, still evading the law. Yeah, well, uh, most of the people we mentioned in that article 
are prosecuted in the United States or in Spain. But the case of the guys that are in Spain, particularly this one, it's amazing uh, how sometimes the law is so so uh, reluctant to pursue or go after white-collar criminals. Mm. You know, this guy is connected to almost every scheme that we have worked on, on in corruption, of corruption in Venezuela, in the States, in Andorra, in Spain. But still, he has some sort of parole, but he walks free. Uh, money, money talks and talks loud, apparently. I mean, what of Credit Suisse said? It was so huge that, you know, Swiss, Swiss uh, prosecutors and, and, and it became like a national scandal. So it was uh, difficult for them to go after the, the, the press and, and, and the journalists. So, so, so far, I haven't been back to Switzerland, so I can't really tell if, if I'll get uh, into uh, some more troubles. But now, all in all, like we, we've been now working with Swiss journalists and I think that the pressure that, that we made with all these medias from around the world really protect us. Nathan Jacquard from OCCRP and Valentina Lares from Armando.info talking about the corruption within PDVSA and how it appears Credit Suisse Bank was happy to take money which had been looted from Venezuela. During our interview, Valentina hinted that the political situation in Venezuela is difficult at the moment and there's a climate of fear within the country. The current president, Nicolas Maduro, is not recognized by many Western countries, including the United States, which under Donald Trump imposed severe sanctions. These have been partially lifted by the Biden administration in exchange for the Maduro regime committing to release 200 political prisoners and hold a fair presidential election in 2024. Economically, a number of factors, including rampant corruption, have caused widespread poverty in Venezuela and an exodus of many working-age people unable to find jobs. Stephen Bodzin is a writer and journalist specialising in Latin American financial fraud and the energy sector. He currently works for Red Intelligence, a data and research provider focused solely on emerging markets. I started by asking him what Nathan and Valentina's report says about the relationship between Venezuela powerful nations and global institutions. What the OCCRP report shows about Credit Suisse should not be limited, the conclusions should not be limited to Credit Suisse. I think it's really important to remember that Credit Suisse got unlucky in the sense that their data got leaked, but they are not alone. The number of companies in the UK, in the United States, in Canada, Switzerland as well, France, if you find a rich country, you will find companies in that country that made money in Venezuela and quite often made money in really dodgy ways. And this is all, the information is out there. It's well known, the authorities know about it, but um, it's much easier to go after the Venezuelans who are involved to complain about PDVSA. Mm, and, and Venezuela as a country right now, by any reading, is in serious trouble. I'm, I'm very interested because I know you've got a passion for, for that part of the world and you lived in Venezuela yourself. I was very interested in your reading on it. Where, where do you see the country as being now? And what about the geopolitical risk factors involved in trying to turn it into a functioning economy that can feed its own citizens, that can take advantage of the oil that is, that is so close to the surface? It's pretty tough because there are a lot of different directions things could go as far as whether to recognize the current 
de facto government in Venezuela, which is Nicolas Maduro's government. He is the president there. He has control. Uh, the United States and several allies a few years ago decided that they would make this really all or nothing gambit of recognizing an interim government, an alternative head of state, Juan Guaido, who was an elected legislator, but not, he was never elected president, but he took over the presidency in his mind and in the minds of the United States and some other countries. Unfortunately for the United States and for Guaido, that didn't work out. Fortunately for Maduro, that didn't work out. And at this point, it's really tough to see exactly what direction things go. As far as this, all these issues of corruption, I think that um, the Venezuelan situation is deeply, deeply problematic right now. Going back decades, the way that business has been done there has included corruption. And unraveling that, unwinding that is going to be really challenging. But it's clear that the current method of trying to do it, which is that the United States and other powerful countries have imposed sanctions on Venezuela and are just leaning on the country. That doesn't seem to be having all that much of an effect. It's mostly just shifting things into more and more opaque structures. At some point, it would probably be good to get Venezuela back into the international system where it can, uh, we can at least see what's happening a little bit better. Is part of Venezuela's problem that it has so much in terms of natural resources it has so much oil it is always going to be a player whoever has control of that oil whether it's the the country itself and the executives who are running pedaveza or the foreign companies coming in looking to exploit it that's absolutely true it's an oil rich place it's a small country and because of the general ideology in venezuela and really in much of the world that the state should be the main player in the oil industry. That means that you have all of the power concentrated in very few hands. If you become the president of Venezuela, you not only get control of the armed forces, the public safety agencies, in import, export, these kinds of things that a normal head of state in any country would be in charge of. You also get to be in charge of the by far biggest company and biggest industry in the country. As long as those two are traveling together, it's a little bit like having church and state traveling together in, in medieval times, where the most important institutions are all in very few hands, and it's a really winner-take-all system with very few checks and balances. It strikes me in your analysis of the situation that nothing is going to improve in Venezuela until either the Maduro government is recognized or the opponent government actually takes proper control and is properly recognized by the international community. Is that is that where you say that the beginning of any solution starts or are there other things that need to be done or could be done more quickly, either internally or externally, to, to stop Venezuela from continuing as a failed state? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of people who've made good suggestions about how to take quicker steps than full recognition of the Maduro government. For example, there have been some efforts on the parts of many countries to work with the Maduro government on humanitarian relief for people in Venezuela. The Colombian government is working with Venezuela on uh, issues of basic person-to-person -person connections. The, the fact that the Colombian government has recognized the Maduro government, that has, that's going to allow a lot easier travel back and forth for the many Venezuelans who have moved to Colombia, the many Colombians living in Venezuela. So. It's not that the United States specifically needs to immediately re-recognize Maduro. 
Um, there are many countries involved that can do their part. The United States can also start letting companies do more humanitarian work and even oil work in Venezuela. That seems to be happening little by little. And is Madura defiant in the face of these sanctions or are the back channels open? Do you, do you sense a softening or a changing of position since, since Trump imposed the, the more stringent sanctions when he was in power? I think that the main change we've seen since the Trump administration put in maximum pressure policies is that the Maduro government has cracked down harder and harder on people made it ever harder for people to resist within Venezuela. And you've seen millions more people leave the country, including many of the kinds of people who you'd want to have there in order to help the country recover. So I think that that's why I personally see that policy as having failed and they didn't have a plan B. I just wonder as a final question whether you could possibly even call it as to whether Venezuela has messed itself up or it is the fault of foreign governments and foreign businesses enabling corruption and putting political pressure which which has caused the the situation in Venezuela people are really good at being corrupt and i think everyone has it in them to take more than their share given the opportunity and one of the things we try to do as a civilization is set up systems where that doesn't happen. Venezuela has had better and worse systems at times in its history. Other countries have had better and worse systems, but it was in a lot of people's interest to dismantle those systems during the oil boom starting in 2003. That included politicians in Venezuela, it included companies in other countries, it included banks like the ones that we're looking at in this investigation. There were a lot of people making money and a lot of people gaining power, a lot of people eating well. It was a good time. So I don't think that the blame should fall on any one individual or any one political party. There were a lot of people at fault for the uh, sacking of Venezuela. And it's going to take a lot of people working together to bring things back from where things are now. My thanks to Stephen Bodzin from Red Intelligence. And before that, Nathan Jacquard from OCCRP and Valentina Lares from Armando.info. We contacted Credit Suisse before they were acquired by UBS and put to them the allegations in this podcast. They said, as a matter of law, Credit Suisse cannot comment on potential client relationships, including closed relationships. Credit Suisse is committed to operating its business in strict compliance with all applicable laws, rules and regulations within the markets in which it operates, and we have stringent control mechanisms in place to combat financial crime-related activities, with a series of significant measures taken over the last decade in line with financial market reforms. Our strategy puts risk management at the very core of our business. We tried to contact Nervous Lobos's lawyer for comment, but we were unable to reach him. When he was previously approached by the OCCRP, he declined to comment. If you'd like to read the OCCRP report in full, it's called Black Gold in Swiss Vaults. Venezuelan elites hid stolen oil money in Credit Suisse. Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption was produced by Lindsay Riley with research by Phoebe Adler-Ryan and Riam Musa at Rethink Audio. The series is a Little Gem production for the OCCRP. Thank you for listening to Dirty Deeds. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and give us a rating. This will help us bring these important stories to more people and make a better podcast for you. 
If you want to continue to hear incredible stories from OCCRP journalists and about the work they do, be sure to follow this podcast on your chosen podcast platform. That way, you won't miss future episodes and series. You can support the difficult and often treacherous work OCCRP journalists do so they can continue to expose the corruption and crime that would otherwise go unseen and unheard. To donate to the OCCRP, please go to occrp.org slash donate.